Hello, this is the latest Chemical Reactions podcast from the team at Rudd Pedersen Public Affairs in Brussels. And today we're going to be discussing aspects of the European Commission's plans for a new chemical strategy for sustainability, concentrating in particular on the need for the industry to provide more data, which may be burdensome and expensive, but may also be necessary. I'm Chris Davis, and with me are Kevin Bradley and Steve George. These days, we're all senior advisors to Rudd Pedersen Public Affairs. But while I'm just a former member of the European Parliament who struggled with my own ignorance to determine which way I should vote on matters like this, my colleagues were people who spoke with conviction and knowledge in trying to persuade me. Kevin Bradley was until recently Secretary General of the International Bromine Council, and Steve George is the former leader for REACH implementation with Rolls-Royce and they've both done a lot besides. So colleagues, let's get on with this. Explain to me why we need more data, because you know, the REACH legislation is now the best part of 15 years old. And when it was first proposed, I was told that it would make the submission of data to the European Chemicals Agency absolutely fundamental. We didn't have that data, but it would become absolutely fundamental and chemicals would not be allowed to be put on the market unless it was there and examined. So what's gone wrong? What's what's missing? Why do we need more? Steve, tell us. Okay, I would um, say that there's different types of data that have been revealed to be necessary since that time. So as you say, this system was designed about 15, 16 years ago. So first of all, dossier gaps. So registrants have struggled to provide all the information the authorities uh, expect to have or to have the, the level of a completeness of that data that the authorities expect. Secondly, there's new things we didn't know we needed at the time, such as there are new hazards um, becoming important, endocrine disruptors, persistence of mobile chemicals, for example, are becoming more important than uh, were thought about at the time. And polymers were outside the scope of registration because the monomer would be registered, but certain polymers seem to be uh, causing concern, requiring more data. Then combinational effects, mixture effects, uh, the so-called cocktail effect of chemicals uh, has raised concerns which uh, they want to address uh, going forward. And finally, use data. So the downstream uses of chemicals uh, are not necessarily known to the registrant, and therefore the registrant may have limited understanding of how the chemicals are actually used downstream in the supply chain, maybe three or four tiers downstream. Oh, heavens. I mean, a heavens, because REACH is already the longest piece of European legislation that exists. Thousands of pages, I'm told. And you seem to suggest we need another couple of thousand pages. I mean, I just don't understand. I mean, why is there such a lack of data? I mean, how can we be putting chemicals in the market for so many years without, without having this sort of stuff? I, I don't think there is a lack of data. There is an awful lot of data. The question is what data is useful and having done something and started to use that data, what do we now understand is now necessary? And uh, how do we learn from a system now it's uh, maturing and uh, developing? Well, Kevin, I mean, I've, you know, I've heard from NGOs who say that, you know, too often companies haven't even submitted the data that they are required to do under the existing REACH legislation. Is that, is that really the case? I think in some cases that is the case, and they've been the subject of compliance and enforcement actions by member states because the enforcement aspects of REACH are dealt with by member states. Unfortunately, the system is a bit clunky. Um, 
it requires not active surveillance, but specific surveillance. Some, they have to go after a few particular companies. They rely a little bit on the potluck system. I'm calling it that. It's not really oh, please, potluck. please, Kevin. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I was worried before. Now I'm terrified. I mean, like, if, 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 it's member, if it's member states, if it's different individual governments, like, yeah. I mean, frankly, like some of our Central and European colleagues who are responsible for yeah. enforcing this legislation, I lose confidence. Yeah, it, it's the architecture, of course, of reach is, is a factor here. I mean, it, it all starts anyway on the compliance side with ECHA doing their trawl with their computer systems to look at uh, data uh, dossier completeness and data completeness and so on. And then they get, you know, they can only sample a certain number of dossiers out of the thousands of dossiers they have every year. And then, of course, you see headlines like 68% of dossiers didn't comply. That might be 68% out of 150 dossiers. So in other words, that's not the thousands. Of so they have to keep checking and checking. And then, as I was saying, and to your point, yes, unfortunately, when ECHA identifies this, it is up to individual member states to go after the companies in those countries to get them to comply. It is very clunky. But again, it's the nature of reach. It's an architecture born out of the EU. We have a, an executive agency. We have a policy division, the commission, and we have 27 member states and their chemical agencies all involved in, in policing this. Okay. Well, are things going to improve? I mean, is, this, is the commission talking about uh, having a, an enforcement procedure, which is more simply more effective? Uh, at the moment, it's been discussed the topic of discussion actually very recently by the high level group that was set up to look at the implementation of the chemical strategy for sustainability so industry stakeholders commission member states and certainly from the chemical industry point of view they would like to see more enforcement not just for the chemicals produced in the eu but for products and chemicals coming into the eu because a lot of the specific uh, non-compliance issues are related to products coming into the EU. But again, you're, say, you're saying it's up to the governments, it's up to member states to enforce what comes it, into their own countries from China or whatever. As I say, this is the, the, the architecture, the system that we have. In an ideal world, we may probably would have migrated towards some kind of institutional or agency, super agency. So ECHA is not a super agency. It's not a, an enforcement body. But if it had that role, then possibly it might do a better job. It might not. Look at the trouble we have with, for example, the control of migration policy in the EU with Frontex, trying to get that sort. It's very difficult once you start to you know, coordinate at that level and do it at EU level. So we have um, even some NGOs say that REACH is the best regulatory system that exists in the world, but there are clearly gaping holes in yeah. the apparatus. Yeah. yeah it, uh, oh, Kevin, Kevin, go on. Well, I was just going to say, I, I, the, the other alternative in the short term is really for member states uh, and the commission to some extent to put, uh, to put their money where their mouths are and say enforcement's an issue, non-compliance is an issue then put more money into it, both in terms of industry, of course, to do its own stuff, but for member states to hire more customs officers, train the customs officers, hire more compliance officers. I mean, that's there, that can be done, but at the moment, there doesn't seem to be that, um, there's a, that willingness. There's a recognition of a problem, but no, no response. Well, I think I described myself as a former MEP 
who was wading in ignorance when it came to some of the technical aspects of this, but maybe I was also taken in by some of the simple slogans. And one of those slogans about reach at the time was, you know, no data, no product, no data, no selling. Um, but clearly there's a lot of selling. Well, Steve, you, you worked with the downstream users. I mean, you, you had to, uh, you, 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 were, you were supposed to be being able, being able to trust, presumably, the, the products that you were being supplied with. The downstream users window on all this in terms of things like dossier compliance is through the safety data sheets. So if I'm using a, a substance or a mixture, then I'm expected to get a safety data sheet in my language in a, in a format compliant with the EU rules, which if it's an imported product can be an issue sometimes. The downstream user has a degree of due diligence check to do to say, does this make sense? If it doesn't make sense, then there's a duty to report concerns upstream. That is the tool for compliance is through the uh, safety data sheet. The safety data sheet is based on the substance registration, but it is not the same thing as the registration dossier. Steve, while, you, while you're there, I, I keep reading, in fact, in the newspapers today, um, comments about forever chemicals and the need to tackle them. What's a forever chemical? And is it the case okay. that we're not tackling them at the moment? So um, I mentioned earlier that there are hazard classes that are becoming of concern since REACH was first conceptualized. And uh, one of those hazard classes that are being talked about are persistent, mobile, and toxic. And so you have chemical compounds which are extremely stable chemically and which can live in the environment for an awful long time. If they are also toxic, that obviously causes a problem with because it sort of builds up in, in the uh, ecosphere, gets consumed by things, and then uh, causes problems with life. And this is where the uh, subject of PFAS comes in, which are perfluoral, perfluoroalkyl substances. This is not a single substance. The presence of um, you know a lot of fluorine with with a carbon-based molecule gives rise to a chemical which is very stable which can give rise to an awful lot of great functionality for many products uh, associated with durability, long life, don't, don't need to repair it. But if some of those chemicals are in the environment, then it is uh, not a great thing for the environment because they'll linger around for an awful long time. Well, I was just reading again in the papers today that uh, you don't want to eat dolphin in the Faroe Isle. I take it you don't want to eat dolphin anywhere, but uh, you don't want to eat dolphin in the Faroe Isles because they're near the top of the food chain and they will have eaten loads of fish that have been stuffed with PCBs dating back to the 1920s. And they can affect immune systems and reduce fertility. And now we have these PFAS. I mean, most of them, are, many of those are banned, aren't they now? But we have these PFAS. That's another generation of things which are going to contaminate the system or are contaminating the system everywhere inevitably anything released to the environment has an effect on the ecosystem but whether the ecosystem can tolerate and deal with it and uh, degrade it over time is is part of the key issues there have been many reasons not to eat dolphin or fish or whatever for so many years i'm thinking uh, you know mercury etc yet mercury is a natural pollutant uh, for example created by glaciation in greenland that creates mercury in the seawater as much as anything else or any industrial activity so there are industrial pollutants which are also naturally produced. Now, many of these uh, anthropogenic chemicals made by man only uh, obviously aren't quite the same as that. And we don't necessarily know the full effects of those on life over the long term. 
And of course, if they are persistent and bioaccumulative, yes, they'll build up in food chains. And that obviously is a cause for concern. Whether that concern is an immediate danger if someone ate dolphin or not, I don't know whether that's hyperbole and I don't know what the data source is. So when REACH was launched, I mean, you know, I think I think of the big political speeches from the commissioner of the time and the like, you know, we must stop treating our world like a giant chemistry set. But from what you just said, we're still treating the world like a great chemistry set. I mean, it just seems astonishing that manufacturers can put things on the market, you know, chemicals. I mean, you know, we're all a bit, I mean, despite the fact we use them in all our, in our lives, they're absolutely essential. We're all a bit nervous about, about them. We've seen what happens in school chemistry laboratories. Um, especially you mentioned mixtures, for example, you know, I don't understand why mixtures haven't been dealt with before. Someone takes a mixture of one chemical and another chemical, it's a ke chemical, and you put them into a test tube and everything fuzzes up and, you know, you get an exciting lesson. I mean, why, why, why haven't these things been addressed before? As a former downstream user, I must point out that we are made of chemicals. Every cell in our body is a chemical set that we don't know what's going on in there. It's far more complicated than anything man can come up with. And every time you put pen to paper, you are a user of a chemical mixture. So yeah. um, I think we need to be careful with the use of the um, hyperbolic phrases, such as we are treating the world like a chemistry set. The question is, which are the hazardous chemicals? Which ones should we take absolute a high level of care for and make sure they don't get out to the environment where they're not intended to be? Back in, in, the, re in the reach days, uh... A former colleague of mine in the European Parliament was, was tested by WWF as part of their, you know, their campaigning and was proven to be the most toxic MEP in the Parliament because he had more than 50 trace, trace elements of uh, chemicals in him that uh, were not there naturally. But um, anyway, I'm pleased to say he's alive and well still some 15 years later. Um, just tell me, the um, Commissioner Sinkovicius, the Environment Commissioner, said, I want to make pollution a thing of the past. But from what you've just said, I mean, what, what you both just said, I mean, really, that's, really, that's not going to happen, is it? Because long after he's dead and long after we're gone, some of these things are still going to be in the environment. If I can just comment on that, I hear this a lot. And uh, my training going way back, I, I was a biologist, but I did. I used to lecture on environmental pollution way back in the 80s. And one of the things I remember and recall saying to my students was that there's no such thing as zero pollution. Human beings would have to stop breathing, eating, excreting, and consuming for there to be no pollution. And sadly, that is, that's the reality. It's, it's an easy phrase. It's a nice um, you know, throwaway remark for, for the media and, uh, and so on. But it's, it's not based on any facts. What we do need to do and can do is try to, as Steve just pointed out, make sure that substances which we need or are needed for some economic or technical or some critical function where they have hazard properties that we try to make sure that they are not released into the environment or to result in exposure to, for human beings. We can do that. It's not impossible. We can do that. But to sort of uh, start from a, the premise that uh, we're going to have a, a world with zero pollution is total nonsense, absolute nonsense. Well, Kevin, you touched on the, the world situation. Are, are we, um, I hope we're out in front. I mean, there's no bad thing to be out in front, yeah. but is the rest of the world following us in our wake? Is it catching up or is it, is it you know, are we the only ones? 
I, I think as Europeans, I think, and in the European Union, I think we're probably out in front in the sense of we're trying to practically grapple with the issues. I know I've been a bit critical just there, but it, in practical terms, even though this looks really ambitious and complicated, this strategy for sustainability for chemicals, there may well be some things that will come out of this, which in fact will take Europe and in fact part of the world, the rest of the world, along further steps along the way to reducing the impact of chemicals. Right at this moment, I would say if you sat around the table with the, with the, the G7, you'd get seven different points of view. The Japanese might tell you that, well, in fact, we've already been doing this. You know, we've been trying to be as strict as we can with chemicals used in, in workplaces and notwithstanding Fukushima and things like that. Generally speaking, they are uh, very good at, at um, managing emissions. They've had a lot of of history with that. And we know the famous mercury minimata disaster with the with mercury chloride and so on. So the other countries do have, have views. Other countries have different views. India would say, for instance, yeah, we're concerned about, uh, about chemicals. We want to try and uh, reduce exposure. But with a population of 1.4 billion people, their priorities are elsewhere at the moment. They want to make sure they can feed their people. Uh, provide energy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, it's, well, maybe it's, the maybe the chemicals is the reason why Indian fertility is going down. Totally facetious there. I mean, you know, I mean, it's a it's it's it hardly seems like something you can leave till last. I think that's a little bit speculative uh, there, yeah. Chris. Um, I, I should point out that there are some UN conventions around us, say, for example, Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants. You have the Minamata Correction, um, Convention, the Rotterdam and the Basel Conventions. These are all driven by the United Nations Environment Programme and its strategic approach to international chemicals management. Okay. What's going on in Europe is uh, pushing the bounds quite a long way beyond that. And it maybe it leads or maybe it is simply the um, regulatory experimental area to work out what works and what does not, which other parts of the world then take on after Europe's uh, taken the lead to uh, test it. But well, all these additional requirements, though, Steve, mean extra costs for industry. What's the what's what's been the response from industry? I mean, I've seen from CEFIC, for example, the European uh, Chemi Chemicals Association trade body. In principle, they're, they're behind the, the new CSS proposals. Yes, CEFIC support many of the principles uh, and they will have suggestions on how to put them into practice, which may or may not align with the Commission and uh, other stakeholders. Things like Forever Chemicals, for example, CEFIC will be one of the first to say yes, but they also add value to society. So we need to work out where these chemicals are essential for health and safety or functioning of society and where they are not. And therefore, it is better simply to ban them. Uh, so, yeah, there, there are mixed views on the detail behind many of these principles, though I, I don't think anyone really um, argues against the underlying principles generally of the CSS. But you get into uh, the, the costs of implementation. That's where the, uh, the issues may arise. So, for example, one of the push on the more data is to bring the, the lower threshold limit for chemical safety reports down from 10 tons down to one ton. That means that an awful lot more small companies will have to do a lot more work for niche chemicals, which will result in exposure scenarios, which downstream users must comply with or demonstrate alternative chemical safety reports for confidential uses. That is going to add an awful lot of work 
and may result in many chemicals simply coming off the market because the uh, producers don't think it's worthwhile. I hear you, but just look, take that proposition, because when REACH came in, you know, the, the niche chemical sector was, was an issue that was raised time and again, and, and concerns that both chemicals would be taken off the market for no particularly good reason, except the sheer, they weren't producing sufficient quantities to justify the, the testing regime, and, and a number of small companies particularly would go out of business. Now, has that happened? And is that going to happen again, if it has? Kevin, maybe, I don't know, are you in a better position? I think it's very difficult to you know, put your sort of finger in on, a, on, a, on a point anywhere and say, this occurred and then this happened. There have been changes. The industries evolve anyway over, over time. And with regulation, that does change their approach and their response. Uh, I think would reach the chemical industry initially had, a, had some big issues with it, but then were able to get to the big milestones, which were the registration milestones in the early part of the the, the 210s. And of course, they learned to, to work with that. That was the big part of it. The smaller companies and particularly uh, users of companies did find themselves having to spend a lot of time, particularly hiring people in order to understand is my if I'm a user of that chemical and my upstream supplier isn't going to support that use, this is what Steve's just possibly been saying, isn't going to support that use, I have to do the work to create a chemical safety report so that I can use it. Now, not many, not many, as far as I'm aware of, uh, were able to and had the resources to do that. Luckily, this time, the upstream manufacturers uh, of chemicals were able to cover the broad mass of, of chemicals that were on the market. This may change though, this time round, because the expansion of the data requirements, particularly with new hazard classes, which will come in, by the way, it's not gonna come in immediately. It's gonna come in over, over time. But as that comes in, the big chemical companies may take a decision to say, well, look, if we're going to have to put up, get all these data requirements we were talking about earlier for all these chemicals, that's going to cost us a lot of money, animal testing, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to support that chemical anymore. We're going to remove that chemical from our portfolio. Now, I'm a downstream user and I get a message from my supplier. He says, we're not going to support that chemical anymore. Sorry. But that downstream user really needs that chemical because that's what they've yeah. been using for yeah. decades. And they say, well, what am I going to do? So then they have to spend a lot of money looking for an alternative. And, you know, in the great scheme of things, they don't have a lot of, a lot of capital to play with to be able to do that. So CEFIC have pointed this out in their economic assessment that they did just before Christmas, and I was just rereading it again today, and that's probably the most salient uh, thing that comes out of it, is that if the thing was implemented tomorrow, right now, tomorrow, there would be a substantial impact on the availability of chemicals in Europe. Now, that's not going to happen, Chris. It won't happen. It won't happen like that. But it's a message. It's a message that when you expand data requirements, you have an impact right okay. through the value chain. I have a quick story to illustrate the point. In 2013, I've got a personal experience of a chemical no longer available in Europe. And the, uh, the producer uh, had a website. And the first thing you did on that website was say where you are in the world. And uh, depending on where you were in the world, that the chemical was not available or was available to you. If you were in any continent other than Europe, 
it was available. If you said any EU country, it was not available. <laughs> now, now, they claim that was purely commercial reasons and nothing to do with reach. What do you think? Okay, tell me, tell me, Steve, while you're there, um, do we even know how to test for all the things we're concerned about? I mean, I always think, you know, how, how long did it take us to try even come up with a proper definition of endocrine disruptors? No, we don't. I think the endocrine disruptors, whether they are category one or category two, is still being discussed. Persistent, mobile and toxic. Well, what does mobility mean? That's still being discussed. And so unless you have a definition, you don't know how to test for it. Uh, so you have to establish categorization, classification, test methods before you can reasonably introduce it into regulations like CLP or REACH. OK, look, we're coming to an end. We, we've had a year of consultations. I think people are impressed by the way the Commission has reached out to try and frame good legislation by, by listening to, to serious comments to, to, get a, to, to, uh, to get an effective outcome. When are we going to, but, this, but I think the consultations are still going on, aren't they? So when are we actually going to see some legislation in draft form? There are many complicated things to resolve in reach before there is draft legislation, not least because things like authorization restriction reform, which we'll come to on a later podcast. And the combination of those is likely to mean that the Commission does not meet its uh, intended timescale of having a draft fleet this year. Yeah. Uh, OK, and Kevin, do you agree? I do. And the, the other important thing is that, as you know, with any proposal for co-decision for legislation, they're going to have to do impact assessments. So there are several impact assessments which will have to be done, and they have promised to do that. But an impact assessment, it's an easy thing to say, and the guide, the better regulation guidelines set out the process. But my experience of these is that they take quite some time to set up, get the consultant, get the process yeah, going. Yeah. I, I don't see... I'll be, I'll put my sort of head out there on a block and say, I would be surprised to see a proposal before the end of the year or the CLP. Yeah. So Commissioner Sinkovicius will be, will be lucky to see the, the, the reach revision, the CSS, take place during his term as commissioner. Well, he might, he might hope to get re-elected to, or re-nominated. He'll be moved, he'll be moved to a separate job <laughs> after he does do fisheries as well. Okay, okay, thanks, thanks, thanks both. That's it for now. That's it for now. But we'll be back because with this subject, there's no shortage of, of things to discuss. So goodbye from the team at Rudd Pedersen Public Affairs. That's me, Chris Davis, and my fellow senior advisors, Kevin Bradley and Steve George. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. I've just got one bit of advice. Don't eat the dolphins. Mm -hmm.